We all know the story. A family runs out of their Long Island home in the middle of the night, fleeing from an invisible force that has terrorized them since they moved in. Green slime oozing from the walls, beady red eyes peering in through a window. A priest scared away by a voice screaming at him to get out. The Amityville Horror isn't just the story of a haunted house, but a true story of a man so depraved he killed his entire family. This is the history behind the crime. Happy spooky season, everyone! Welcome back to another episode of The History Behind the Crime. I'm your host, Aaron Lasley. You should know that I am wearing Halloween socks right now. I bought, I don't know, like six or seven new pair just a couple weeks ago. And I also bought Maggie a Silence of the Lambs doggy t-shirt. So I guess I gotta start calling her Precious now. Anyway, I'm in the middle of decorating my office at work, and each year I go with a witch theme, and, you know, there's probably a few people at work who would agree that I am one, and I'm fine with that, but that's a story for the next episode. Shh! Spoilers! Obviously, you know by now that this time of year is my happy time. I'm going to have uh, not just one spooky episode. I'm going to have three, which means I need to get my button gear because that is a lot of researching, writing, and recording just for one month. But don't worry. I actually wrote a paper in college about one of these topics. Spoilers! Okay. Okay. Gosh, I'm, <laughs> I'm kind of excited. Um, one of my favorite scary movie collections is the Conjuring series. I love them, and Patrick Wilson is so incredibly hot. And he's a good actor also. I think the first movie's the best, but one of my favorite scenes takes place in The Conjuring 2. At the beginning of the movie, the Warrens which we'll talk about a little bit later, are at the Amityville house conducting a seance. The scene actually gives me the chills because a lot of what she is acting out actually happened. Anyway, I was watching that movie a few months ago and I knew I had to tell you the real story behind the haunting. So I guess rather than the history behind the crime, it's the crime behind the haunting? Well, it's spooky season. Indulge me. At first, I thought this was going to be a fun episode because who doesn't like a haunted house? Until my research started to go down a creepy rabbit hole which led to possession and demons and other things that make you shiver. It also hit me that, wait, Aaron, you're talking about a family who was brutally murdered. This isn't a movie. This is real. It also reminded me, I've seen some creepy stuff in my lifetime. And my hometown community was the scene of a horrifying family murder as well. You should know, when I watch some of the 
of those ghost hunting or paranormal shows, I turn into a big skeptic. So yeah, okay, you're telling me there's not a string attached to that chair moving by itself? Uh-huh, sure. Or, yeah, right, you were possessed by a demon when you stabbed your girlfriend to death. Here's the thing. I absolutely believe in ghosts and poltergeists and demons just the same as I believe that there are angels and good things in this world. I grew up Christian, but anyone who has worked in law enforcement or in psychiatric hospitals can tell you stories of the paranormal and evil. I've seen my fair share and wished to God I never had. I don't believe they show themselves in TV shows, but I know they're out there. This is not the place to relive those memories because, well, I'm alone in my house right now and I really want to sleep tonight. As for family murders, I grew up in a town in Oklahoma called Broken Arrow. While Tacoma is my home now, Broken Arrow will always be my hometown. It has a cute downtown, lots of subdivisions, a good school system, good people, good police force, and in the summer of 2015, became the scene of a family killing. Just a couple of miles down the street from where my parents live, 18-year-old Robert Bever and 16-year-old Michael Bever brutally stabbed to death their mother, father, 12- and 6-year-old brothers, and their 5-year-old sister. They slit the throat of their 13-year-old sister, but she managed to survive the attack and they hadn't made it upstairs yet to kill their two-year-old baby sister before the police arrived. Aside from their 13-year-old sister, each victim received over 20 stab wounds. I cannot imagine the hate or the depravity it takes to do that to not just one person, but five, and not just strangers, but your own family. When police arrived, Robert and Michael ran into the woods behind the house where the BAPD managed to track them down and arrest them. They had to unleash a police dog to drag Michael out of his hiding spot. Later, it was revealed the two killers planned a murder spree across the town of Broken Arrow with the intent of shooting as many people as possible. What gives me the chills and stops me to this day is that my parents, my nieces and nephews, my friends, and even I could have been their victims if it hadn't been for the 12 year old brother who managed to call the police before he died and the BAPD who found those fuckers. Robert Bever pleaded guilty to murder and was eventually sentenced to life without parole. Michael Bever pled not guilty, but was found guilty and was sentenced to life with parole. He will be eligible for parole in 200 years. Before we go much further, I want to remind you the stories I'm about to tell you are about two real families. These are not fictional characters from a movie. Whether or not you believe what happened to the Lutz family is true, we are still talking about the murders of six people. And we should remind ourselves that Hollywood turned, 
turned their tragedy into a movie for our enjoyment. For this episode, we're going to put aside the movie that smashed box office records and concentrate on what really or what supposedly happened. Whether or not you believe in ghosts, demons, spirits, or haunted houses, there are some things that happened in Amityville that cannot be explained to this day. We're going to explore those and look at the DeFeo family, the Lutz family, and the history of the demonic. Side note, I got a lot of information from Gerald Brittle's book, The Demonologist, The Extraordinary Career of Ed and Lorraine Warren, and Claude, I'm going to butcher her last name, Leketo's book, The Secret History of Poltergeists and Haunted Houses, From Pagan Folklore to Modern Manifestations. A lot of my other information came from independent articles and documentaries. When I think about the Bever murders and the fear it made me feel, I imagine that's how the town of Amityville on Long Island, New York felt in 1974. On the evening of November 13th, a belligerent 23-year-old Ronald DeFeo Jr., also known as Butch, bursted into Henry's bar needing help. He claimed someone murdered his mother and father. A few men from the bar went to the house at 112 Ocean Avenue and found Ronald and Louise DeFeo shot dead in their bed. The Suffolk County police were called, and a search of the house revealed not just the murders of the DeFeo parents, but 18-year-old Dawn, 13-year-old Allison, 12-year-old Mark, and 9-year-old John. All had been shot in the back in their beds with a 35 caliber rifle. Here's what's really strange about that. There was no storm the night the DeFeos died. No thunder to mask the sound of a rifle. Have you heard 35 caliber rifle? It's pretty loud. So loud that you can hear it echo from a mile away. And yet every DeFeo victim was found shot in the back, laying in their own beds. Not in the hallway, running away after they heard the first shot, or in the doorway where they would have come face to face with the killer, but in their beds like they were the very first victim. There is no forensic evidence to suggest any of the victims got up to investigate the noise, and there is no forensic evidence the killer drugged the victims beforehand. Not only does it seem that the family didn't hear anything, the neighbors didn't either. No one in the neighborhood heard the six-plus rifle shots it took to, to kill the DeFeo family. But Aaron, you say, what about a silencer? First of all, silencer doesn't make the noise just magically disappear. Forget what you've seen in the movies. There's no piff-piff sound. Second, a silencer only reduces noises. So while you wouldn't hear a big boom you would still hear a pretty good crack of the rifle. It could explain how the neighbors didn't hear, but what about the victims? Even investigators at the time couldn't explain it. Butch DeFeo was originally taken into custody that night because he was in fear for his life 
and not necessarily because the police believed he committed the murders. Butch claimed the murders were the result of a mob hit. Now, there's some evidence to verify uh, the DeFeo father was loosely connected to the mob. But investigators were a bit leery, not only because the hitman that Butch said did it had a damn good alibi, but also because the mob frowned upon killing children. Sure, take out the father and maybe the wife, but you keep your mitts off the kids. Butch's story also changed multiple times, and his timelines didn't make any sense. After interrogation, DeFeo finally did admit he committed the murders, but, but pled guilty by reason of insanity because he claimed he heard evil voices telling him to kill his family. The jury didn't believe him, found him guilty, and sentenced DeFeo to six 25-year life sentences. That would have been the end of of that tragic story. But a family moved into the house at 112 Ocean Avenue and catapulted the story into horror legend. I understand this was a brief account of what happened to the DeFeo family. Trust me when I say there are hundreds of documentaries about the murders, not only from a true crime perspective, but a paranormal perspective as well. And today, we're here for the paranormal perspective. So let's get into that. What happened to make Butch DeFeo kill his family? More than likely, it was because Butch was an entitled brat whose father and mother spoiled him rather than making him get a real job and he wanted more money. Butch was a drug user and it wouldn't have been the first time a person committed a heinous crime when under the influence. That's the most likely reason. But what about his claims that voices told him to kill his family? Let's take a moment and believe him. Okay, there's undiagnosed schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Perhaps mental degradation due to some physiological deterioration of the brain. Well, here's the thing about that. He showed no symptoms while in prison, and died in 2021. What else could have caused the voices? According to Ed and Lorraine Warren, the demonic did. Before we get to the Warrens, I think we all know that if Butch DeFeo had been coerced or possessed by an evil spirit, it wouldn't have been the first case of possession. The concept of possession had been around since, well, pretty much the beginning of mankind. Early man and many cultures today believe in animism, which is the belief most everything is embodied with a spirit, god or goddess, ghost, or yeah, even demons. From African to many Native American cultures, animism has been around for forever. Some indigenous peoples from the American Northeast have named their animism belief Manitou. Both real and abstract things are embodied by Manitou. However, there are also spirits that 
are not so friendly. For the Munsee people, one of these spirits is, is Montantu, who is pretty much the spirit of death and would be the equivalent of Satan. Many tribes have their own legends of spirits, both good and evil. In my studies, both for this podcast and in other projects, I have found many legends of possession by spiritual animals, but I haven't found that many about evil spirits possessing a person. Okay, that's not to say there aren't indigenous beliefs about it. I have read more Native American legends about people being oppressed by evil spirits rather than possessed by them. It's the spirit that either induces harm upon you or inspires you to do harm. Obviously, I'm not an expert in Native American mythology or religion because it can get pretty complex. But I wanted to show you that the idea of good versus evil entities is not entirely a white European complex. Many cultures and religions, including Asian, African, Jewish, Islamic, and so many others, believe in the good and the bad, angels and demons. For Christians, we can trace our stories back to both the Old and New Testament especially the New Testament, when Jesus did some pretty awesome exorcisms of some pretty bad demons. Since then, the Roman Catholic Church, and then later Protestant religions, believed demons could influence and possess people. Only an exorcism could relieve someone of the possession. But the Catholic Church believed, and still does, there are differences in demonic influence. There's possession, which is, well, possession of a demon without consent. Obsession, which is sudden attacks of irrationally obsessive thoughts like suicidal or homicidal ideation. Oppression, which is person tormented by misfortunes. There's external physical pain caused by outside forces, infestation, which is like a haunted house or object, and subjection, which is voluntarily submitting to demonic influences. A little bit creepy. So I guess the story of Job is the story of oppression, while the stories of Jesus casting out legions was possession. Furthermore, the Roman ritual identified characteristics of possession. And I think some of you know some of this. How can you tell if someone is possessed by a demon? An individual possessed by a demon may show superhuman strength, speak in tongues or languages they didn't previously know. They have revelations of things they didn't know before blasphemous rages, and profanity or aversions to holy symbols, names, or places. So, pretty much everything Reagan displayed in the movie The Exorcist. Minus the pea soup. How do Catholics exorcise a demon? Historically, both priests, nuns, and lay people could complete the Roman ritual of exorcism with little interference from the Vatican. If you believe someone was possessed, well, you're going to perform an exorcism. 
Today, the Vatican is very, very stringent on who can and cannot perform an exorcism. I'm talking about somebody who is a professional exorcist, not just a priest. The Vatican, or at the very least, a diocese, can only give permission for an exorcism after a thorough investigation has been completed. Why? Because the Vatican now believes most cases of so-called possession are really people suffering from mental health or other physiological conditions. It can be pretty dangerous to perform an exorcism on someone suffering from epilepsy or schizophrenia. The same is true for exorcisms on houses and the like. A complete investigation has to be conducted before permission is granted by a higher authority. The belief of demon possession and the like in Protestantism kind of mirrored that of Catholicism. In 1597, King James I of England, yes, he's where we got the King James Bible from, defined four methods of demonic influence. Uh, spectra, or haunted houses. Obsession, or the outward torment like Job experienced. Possession, which is inward torment, and fairy, which is voluntary submission. And I think there was a little bit of Scottish influence coming out of that um, fairy concept. Because, you know, the Scots absolutely do believe in the ideas of fairies, which are not like Tinkerbell, but kind of like little mischievous then sometimes evil beings. Uh, Protestants at the time didn't really, really believe in the rite of exorcism. It was just too Catholic for them. And during this time, um, some hardcore Protestants were trying to get rid of uh, Catholic influence. One could only overcome demonic possession by prayer and fasting. And if you were possessed, you were pretty much shunned by your neighbors and families. So good luck with that. Some Protestant religions uh, today do believe in exorcism. While it may seem sim uh, similar to the Catholic rite of exorcism, it does have its differences. Protestant churches do not need permission from the higher ups and anyone from the minister to the congregation can perform exorcisms. There's a lot of praying, use of crucifixes, full body water immersion, and in more evangelical circles, the laying of hands. Some churches do require some kind of investigation or a doctor consultation, but others do not. Who does these investigations? Well, within the Catholic Church, both priests Vatican investigators and lay investigators like Ed and Lorraine Warren do. Who are Ed and Lorraine Warren? They're pretty interesting people who made it their lifelong goal to help those oppressed or possessed by demonic forces. I don't know if I necessarily believe that they saw half the things they claimed, but they seem like good people, so... I'm okay with it all. 
Ed was a demonologist and Lorraine was a medium. Uh, together, they investigated haunted houses, predominantly in the Northeast, and helped those possessed by demons. They worked very closely with the Catholic Church, but they were heavily criticized by people who thought, well, the paranormal was a bunch of hogwash. They helped investigate some of the most famous hauntings and possession cases in the United States, including that of the Amityville House. So back to Amityville. In December 1975, a little over a year after the DeFeo murders, George and Kathy Lutz and Kathy's three children bought the house at 112 Ocean Avenue at a pretty good discounted price and moved into the fully furnished house. Oh yeah, the DeFeo furniture came with the house, including the beds. And before you ask, yes, the Lutz family knew about the murders that took place within the house. When the Lutzes moved in, they asked a priest and a family friend to bless the house for them. Based on the priest's account, not the book or movie, the priest started praying and sprinkling holy water when a voice demanded he get out. This happened in the room Mark and John DeFeo had been murdered in. Later on, the priest started to get ill and received wounds on his hands that resembled the stigmata. And for those of you who don't know, the stigmata is the, um, the wounds of Christ when he was crucified. The Lutz family wasn't really deterred until they claimed other things started to happen in the house, like doors slamming in the middle of the night, George claiming he could never get warm, the kids' beds shaking, doors being ripped off the hinges, Kathy levitating above her bed, George waking up every morning at 3.15 a.m., about the same time the DeFeos were murdered, and green slime oozing from the walls. The Lutzes fled in terror on the night of January 14, 1976, and never returned. In February, a reporter got a hold of the Warrens and asked if they could conduct a seance in the house. While many of us would think a seance is just trying to communicate with the dead, for the Warrens, it was a very serious event and could invite things in, well, that you don't want to invite in. The Warrens did head down to Amityville and took a look at the house before they ever interviewed the Lutzes. Ed described the house like someone was still living there. There was food in the pantry, newspapers from mid-January on the table, and clothes still in the closet. When the Lutzes said they had fled the house, they fled the house, leaving everything, including the house deed, behind. I don't know what vibes the Warrens picked up on from the house, but they agreed to do the seance and invited other mediums to join as well. During the seance, some of the participants became physically ill or experienced heart palpitations. They weren't able to communicate with anyone, or maybe I should say anything. But two things came out of the complete investigation. 
One was an infrared photo taken within the house, which showed the image of a boy with glowing eyes. And the other, the Warrens concluded the house was not haunted by ghosts, but infested by something non-human. And Ed describes something non-human as things that have never walked this earth before. The house was infested by demons. Both the image of the boy and the infestation were defined as demonic by the Warrens and other paranormal investigators. The story was so interesting that Jay Anson wrote The Amityville Horror in 1977. The Lutz family, they didn't work directly with Anson, but Anson did have several hours worth of audio tapes on which the Lutzes described the events that happened within the house. George and Kathy accused Anson of embellishing certain details, which, you know, he did. And not surprisingly, after the publication of the book, both Butch DeFeo and his lawyers started to claim that Butch had been possessed at the time of the murders, a story Butch later retracted. Even though a lot of criticism was heaped upon the Lutzes, who eventually relocated to California, and I do not blame them, so criticism was heaped on the Lutzes and the Warrens, the book was still made into a movie and became a box office smash. Back then, it was so horrifying that people actually passed out while watching the movie in the theater. It seems while people were not quick to believe the Lutzes, the same people still got their thrills from watching the movie and driving by the house, which today has a different address and look to throw off tourists. Yeah, those creepy eye-looking windows are gone. So what really happened to the DeFeos and the Lutzes? Supernatural or greed? Common sense tells us it was greed that made Butch DeFeo kill his family. And common sense tells us that George and Kathy Lutz may have told a few tall tales about a creepy house in order to get attention. However, if the Warrens are to be believed, it could have gone something like this. It started with the infestation of the DeFeo house. Both Ronald DeFeo Sr. and Butch felt the negative energy put forth by whatever demon lurked within. The two fought constantly, always at each other's throats, and there were times Butch threatened his father with a gun. Ronald DeFeo Sr. dealt with the demonic oppression by placing religious statues around the house in the yard. Butch dealt with the oppression by diving into drugs and alcohol. The infestation created fear within the house, and the demon focused in on Butch, who seemed to be the easiest target because he could not control himself around drugs or alcohol. As Ed Warren said, if you can't control yourself, then something else will. It slowly broke down Butch's will and urged him to kill his family. On the night of November 13th, 1974, Butch couldn't fight the demonic suggestions any longer. With the help of demonic supernatural forces, 
Butch used the 35 caliber rifle and shot his family. And whatever supernatural force was in the house helped suppress the sound of the rifle shots so Butch could dispatch his family quickly. The oppression never became full-blown possession because Butch never demonstrated any odd behavior in prison other than being a general asshole. A year later, the Lutz family moved into the house. They were a new family, and George was still getting used to being the stepfather to three young children. There was some tension and stress, and George also had an interest in the occult, which helped open the door to the demonic presence in the house. The presence started to oppress the family, but focused mostly on George because of the stress he was under as a new husband, father, business owner, and now owner of a murder house. He was the easiest target. Like Butch DeFeo, the entity slowly started to tear him down, trying to find a hole that it could wiggle its way into and fully possess George. The entity used strange occurrences to scare the family and create more fear and stress. However, unlike Butch DeFeo, George was able to fight off the oppression and escape with his family. So, what do you guys think? Bullshit story or some plausibility there? Frankly, I think it's both. I think Butch DeFeo was simply a murderer, but his act was so heinous that there was enough residual evil left behind in the home to give the Lutzes an epic case of the willies. And when you have an epic case of the creeps, your eyes play tricks on you. My only question is this. Who the hell buys a murder house? In conclusion, I absolutely believe that evil exists. Both, both the evil conducted by humans and evil of the supernatural variety. I, I wholeheartedly believe Satan exists, but he doesn't want us to believe that he does, which is why we're so skeptical about things like possession and demonic infestation. He wants us off guard so he can more easily manipulate us. That's why I'm thankful for the good in this world. I'm thankful for good people. Remember the story about the Bever family at the beginning of the episode? Good people prevailed in the end. After the murders, the house mysteriously caught on fire and it had to be demolished. The community rallied and with the help of the city of Broken Arrow, they turned the site into a reflection park for the community. And the two sisters who survived? People from all over donated clothes and toys for the girls, and thousands upon thousands of dollars were raised for them. So many families came forward and wanted to adopt the sisters. They were eventually adopted by the same family, and they are thriving today. Remember, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph in the world is that good men do nothing. It doesn't take a priest to take down evil. It only takes bravery to do the right thing. 
this episode, I want to urge you guys to do some homework. I've spent hours searching through several states missing and exploited children posts. And my God, there are so many of them. How do you pick just one, just one child to feature in an episode? Instead, I want you to go through your state or country's missing children posts, find one closer to your area, and feature it on your social media pages. Someone out there knows something. You may not, but you may know people who do. Share these children's stories with them. Let's bring some kids home. All right, guys, so that does it for this episode. Uh, There's a few more listeners from Europe who have joined us, and I want to say thank you for listening. Uh, You're all truly awesome, and I greatly appreciate all the support you've shown me. I also hate to say this, but don't forget to follow on Spotify or follow on Instagram at The History Behind the Crime. If you want to get a hold of me, which you are more than welcome to do, you can reach me at thehistorybehindthecrime at gmail.com. And I'll be back next time with another spooky episode. Until then, take care of yourselves and take care of each other. Bye.